Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Waiteka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Thank you, everybody, for joining me today. This is going to be a very informative show for so many of us, and I'm just so excited that my guest today is Jessica Lizelle Cannon. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Hi, Martha. Thanks for having me today. Oh, I'm just, I'm so delighted. And for those of you listening, you know I have this tendency, and I I think it's very important to do some spelling. So let me just tell you that Jessica's name is spelled J-E-S-S-I-C-A. She does use her middle name, which is L-I-Z-E-L, and her last name, Cannon, is spelled C-A-N-N. N-O-N. And she has two websites, and we'll be talking about that. But first of all, now that I've got the spelling taken care of, let's just get to know you. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks for that. Um, there are several Jessica Cannons out there. Um, yes. So I have, I have kind of stumbled into this life of caregiver advocacy, and I'm blessed to have been experiencing these changes with my mother. But beforehand, I was an accountant, taking time numbers away years ago in, in a corporate setting and never once thought that I would be in the situation that I am today. Interesting. It's, it's really interesting. And I want people to know that you do have a certification. You are a certified dementia practitioner. And I thought we could really talk about that and tell us a bit about your background and and what that actually means for those of us that frankly have never heard of that term. Right. It is. Well, people are still learning to hear about dementia itself. So now you have Mm -hmm. a practitioner and it's not one to uh, equate to gerontology. Entirely different. The certification for a dementia practitioner is basically someone who is is able to demonstrate the achievement and specialized training in areas of related to Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia as well, which includes the forms that my mother is living with. I see. So how did you, how did you actually get this background? I mean, did you, is program that you attended or, was there? How did how yeah. did that happen? Yes, I was actually in the process of looking to place my mother, and as I spoke more with some of the senior advisors, uh, they explained to me, you know, the caregivers usually are the experts, but the items and the areas that I was talking about, they pretty much brought it up that wow, you really are an expert when it comes to this, and I I didn't take it <laughs> that way because. To me, I'm, I'm just one who pays attention to probably more details than I should, but I am fascinated with learning. So I took the extra step and worked on getting the certification so that I can take this information and help others. You know, credibility always weighs more. When Now, if I sat there and said, well, I'm a certified public accountant, which I am, would you mm-hmm. take advice from me as uh, the dementia expert? It always brings that question back of, well, how, why are you the one to talk to me about this? Right, right. I can see where people would want to know what qualifies you for that. Was it a long right. certification process? Thankfully, no, because of the, at the time that I was getting this, my uh, over 10 years of experience with my mother counted towards other programs and classes that I would have needed to take. Nice. That's that's really great. And I'm looking at both of your websites while I'm speaking to you, 
And for those of you that are listening, if you would like to do the same, it's pretty simple. Um, if you go to jessicalazellcannon.com, that's one website. The other website is the proactivecaregiver.com. So you 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 are you are in both places, and and frankly, mm-hmm. I, I must congratulate you are you are very accomplished. And and that really speaks a lot to your credibility, frankly. So you've written a book, and I think yeah. your book is really important. And it's called the Proactive Caregiver. And but it's but you have you have the the words underneath the pro uh, the pro the proactive caregiver, which is stop reacting to life, living proactively. And I and that's on the cover of your book, and I really mm-hmm. like the cover of your book, Jessica, because mm-hmm. it actually um, it has photos of like how how do I do this? How what what is what are the steps for me to do this? And that's really part of what I wanted to talk with you about today. So what I mean, not everybody can just sit down and write a book. So what compelled I write? I mean, you might have it all. People keep telling me, oh, Marsha, you should write a book. Oh, really? Uh, let me see what I could add that yeah. in. Oh, God. Um, so I'd like to know what compelled you to write your book, The Proactive Caregiver? Right. Well, I did grow up journaling. That was my one of my mechanisms for stress relief, but... I started to attend support groups with other caregivers just because I felt so awkward and out of place and I didn't know what was happening, why my world was clashing or what felt like was clashing with my mother's world in this way. And so I started asking questions and I started listening to caregivers. We were all asking similar questions, but no one really had answers and they didn't know where to take them to get more specific, not get lost in the medical jargon, but really figure things out. And so I started doing some research. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, I hate to say it this way, but it's one of my happy places, the need to know, fulfilling the knower part and finding out the who's, the why's, the when and how. And as I found more information, I not only answered their questions, but it finally made so much sense to me and how our dysfunctional families seem to be side-blinded by dementia and how it crept into our life like a thief in the night. And instead of stealing our sentimental items, dementia stole our relationships, it stole my confidence, it stole my identity, and it stole mom's ability to thrive without us. So I wanted to put it down so that other caregivers wouldn't feel so lost and yes. defeated like I did. I can see I get just I could use my own family as an example. I'm probably no different than a lot of people. I have two children, mm-hmm. two two mm-hmm. adult children. My daughter lives very close by. My son Good. lives in Arizona, lives in Tucson. He's not mm-hmm. going to be available to help me should I need this kind of assistance. So then what? Does that mean that everything falls on my daughter or my son-in-law? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and then what? You know, um, right. and so I think when you reach a certain age, particularly if you have um, some of these conditions within your own family, um, mm-hmm. you, you can't help but kind of think about it. Now, I, I joke all the time when I say, Where, where's my phone? What, what, mm-hmm. Is this Monday right. or Tuesday? And that's when just about anybody I speak to will say, uh, where did I leave my phone? And I don't remember. Yeah, I guess it's, you're, no, it's Tuesday. And and you could be in your 30s. And, and, right. and you could oh, be saying yeah. some of the exact same things that somebody mm-hmm. in their 70s say. And, and what I find personally um, is I take some comfort in that. And I suspect that, you know, COVID, I think, played a huge role in this. Do you think that COVID has um, played a role in this um, um, caregiving part of life? I absolutely think it has. It, it definitely helped bring a 
spotlight to caregivers who had already been feeling isolated and not receiving any kind of recognition. Right. It's funny how that word isolation, I, you know, I'm a word person. I've always talked. I've always been a word person. I pay attention to words. And I, mm-hmm. I don't remember ever the word isolation having the, the command of the language the way it has, especially when it started. Whether you were the parents of two little kids or you were, you know, uh, an, an older adult and fearful that, oh, my gosh, don't bring COVID into my home. You know, right. where's your mask? You know, so I'm just going to bunker in, you know. And it's really interesting how the word isolation really took on an additional meaning. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you, you mentioned um, in your book about anxiety and feeling overwhelmed. And um, I, I had a show about this, um, about anxiety, not too long ago. And, and what she said was anxiety is fear. Yeah. It's 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 not like oh I'm feeling anxious my my arm is twitching no it's about fear. So mm-hmm. when you talk about being a proactive caregiver, what what does that mean? What is a proactive caregiver? Well, in terms of fear, I didn't want that level of anxiety anymore because it was this fear of the unknown. I got mm-hmm. to the point where I was exhausted and emotionally beaten down by constantly reacting to situations. And I wanted to get ahead of the process. How do I go about doing that? So the idea really came to me because as I stepped out of the corporate world to become mom's essential caregiver, I was coming out of that accounting corporate mindset, and everything was all about projections and trending and let's, ha- let's be proactive. Let's build our our balance sheet and so on and so forth. And so the way in my mind and the way I started to view the situations with my mother was I need to become a proactive caregiver instead of always reacting to life with her. And that's where the title of the book came. So Mm -hmm. to me, a proactive caregiver is someone who deliberately prepares for those uncertain outcomes, whether it's financially legally, and even spiritually, because proactive caregivers need to guard their health just to avoid needing a caregiver themselves. Because like you said, especially with COVID and how we realized what was actually happening to the family caregivers, if we cannot take care of ourselves, then we're going to struggle and we won't be able to take care of our loved ones. That, that makes a great deal of sense to me. I think that we really can't give, like you just said, unless we are strengthened within ourselves. And mm-hmm. um, and, and, and while frightening as that might be for whomever is in that position, whether you are the, the, the son, the daughter, the, the niece, the nephew, whoever you might be, Maybe you're not even a family member. Maybe you are just the best friend of this person that you've known since high school. Um, So what would you say are the primary attributes of a proactive caregiver? Right. So if you're thinking about becoming a proactive caregiver yourself, then what's going to be necessary is you're going to need to be more attentive, compassionate, and organized. You know, mom taught me every little detail matters. In fact, she's still teaching me this indirectly, of course. But paying close attention to the day-to-day change is basically the difference between having time to make plans or being stuck in crisis mode and always going, well, holy crap, now what? Right. So you said being attentive, being mm-hmm. compassionate. And would you remind me what the third one was? And the third one is learning how to be organized. Organized, right. I would imagine, I don't know that you would necessarily 
prioritize those in any other way, but I would just say that all of those are so important because if you are feeling overwhelmed, I would Mm -hmm. think being organized would be a tool, right? A tool that would be like, I know that mom has, I know that dad has an appointment on Thursday at 2 o'clock, and you know what? I just realized I can't go then. Or I need to Mm -hmm. change that appointment so that I can go then, so that I can be with with my loved one. Because, you know, it doesn't, you don't, it's not like you turn on a light switch, right? It's not like one minute you're you're healthy and the next minute you're going, what the hell just happened? You know, it's a gradual process, correct? Right. In this case with dementia, it is gradual and we're talking years. And so we have plenty of time to make the changes if we're aware of what's happening in our lives. Right. Were you aware that that was happening with your mom initially? No, we weren't, because even though my mother was living with manic depressive bipolar disorder, (laughs) it was difficult with the highs and the lows. And so a lot of what was happening, we just dismissed as mom's erratic and I'm not proud of it, but the way we were years ago, especially in the 80s, was the crazy woman hormones, right? They mm-hmm, just dismissed mm-hmm. that way. And so as the years progressed and she progressed and declined, we just kept dismissing so much of it or laughing at the oddball behavior until it got to the point where we absolutely had to say, okay, this is not normal. Something's wrong. Mm-hmm. But by then, mm-hmm. she was already in stage four. So we wasted many years by not being aware. And that's why being proactive and mm-hmm. the attention to detail matters so much. Yes. You know, it, I, I'm learning a lot from you. I know we've talked off the air as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't really even understand that there were stages so is 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 for is for the 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 last stage, or are there stages beyond four? There are seven stages in total, and the fifth stage is actually split between an early stage five and a late stage five. And it's usually, I would say, the earlier stages can last anywhere from three to five years. At oh a time. no, kidding. Yes, and then as you get to stage four, five, and six, they're more typically a year to three years in time. It just depends on what your daily habits are. Wow, I would not have known that. You know, I when my when my auntie was um, suffering, um, you know, she, we weren't living in the same city. We weren't living near each other, so I didn't. I didn't. I was mm-hmm. never around her to observe the behavior and so mm-hmm. my cousin was he lived close enough that he was able to to be a, a proactive caregiver as you would say so i've never really mm-hmm. experienced that to know what that's like and i and so i'm i'm really appreciating the things that you're saying because I, i'm learning a lot so if you were to describe i don't know i, I know we're kind of moving all over the place here but and maybe we'll get to this. So why don't I? Why don't we just wait till that that question comes up? But I would like to ask you this because clearly you know the answer to this. What do you think are the significant challenges that caregivers need to learn to be more proactive? Well, first, understanding being proactive does not happen overnight just like your loved one's illness didn't happen overnight. And one of the things to be aware of is the challenge of rejection. There is Mm. rejection to change from your loved one. There is definitely situational depression. You may not have clinical depression, but I know I experienced several months of situational depression and then loneliness. Mm -hmm. Because even... Even when the best laid plans are emotions, the human factor is still involved. And, you know, caregivers know how to become so many different things as they're helping their loved one. 
but at the same yeah. time, they're they're still at that very vulnerable state where they have to hope that their loved one will receive the care in a loving way and not respond in the don't tell me what to do. Quit quit bossing me around. Quit mm-hmm. quit making me do things that I don't want to do. Kind but, of ag- um yeah. aggr- almost aggressive, right? And agitated. Right. Right. And because this is what I got from my mother. Mom wanted to prove to me that she was a survivor and didn't need anyone. But her living conditions and her declining health proved otherwise every mm-hmm. single time. And so that those repeated rejections that led me to feelings that I didn't expect to have with guilt and shame because I was depressed and I was grieving her loss of abilities yeah. and then I didn't want to do it anymore. So right. becoming, becoming proactive is the best way you can approach this, but it's not always an easy approach. Did you live near your, or do you, I, your mom is still alive. Do you live near your mother? I do now. I, uh-huh. We were at opposite ends of the town when we first, many years ago, well over 10 years when I started to care for her part-time. And so there were some challenges, yeah, <laughs> the the distance, but once mm-hmm. I started recognizing that she needs me closer or I needed to be closer to her, mm-hmm. she actually had a, a random, wild, spontaneous move, and she moved closer to me. She sold our wow. childhood home and moved closer to me. Interesting. And since then, it, just, it is. It, it was crazy how everything happened that way. And since mm-hmm. then, I've found communities to keep her close to me so that I can make it a chance to visit her very often. That's lovely. So I know that you have a chapter in your book called Creating a Cultural Shift. What are you trying to shift, and and how is that achieved? Right. So this shift that I'm referring to is basically the stats that are related to those living with dementia and how they are increasing and affecting those younger and younger. And this is the scary part. Dementia is not the old person's forgetful disease that they have so many have seen or heard of since their, the 1980s and 90s as more of this information was coming up. Mm-hmm. Dementia is affecting those that are my age, 47, I'm not embarrassed to say, and even mm-hmm, younger. Yes. In fact, since we last spoke, an article came out in a news break talking about a 19-year-old Chinese youth that was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And the shocking factor is nothing was related with his family history. There was no signs, no other related. He was struggling with memory loss from the time he was 17. Wow. So this is where the show, the cultural shift comes into me because this is where I believe strongly that dementia is more of a disease of accountability, if anything, and it's our environment, our lifestyle habits, and mm-hmm. how we respond to excessive stress that's causing this deterioration in the first place. Hmm. For those people that don't know, and I think this is really important, and I'm I'm really happy that you are sharing so much really valuable information. But for those that don't know, what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Sure. There is, the only difference is the type. And this is something that it gets a little frustrating but Alzheimer's is dementia. It just happens to be one of the top four, and so it gets the most marketing. It gets the most attention, and it's also the most misunderstood in some cases for other forms because regardless of the form that your loved one may be experiencing, the difference is basically the area of the brain that's deteriorating fastest or the most. But they Hmm. all still have overlapping symptoms that include memory loss. So Alzheimer's is dementia. 
but can you have dementia and not have Alzheimer's and have something else? Absolutely. The four there are the most common types aside from Alzheimer's is vascular dementia, frontal temporal dementia, or Lewy body dementia. And there's several, and I'm talking over a hundred different types. There's alcoholic dementia, there's football dementia, and the list just goes on. It's wow. Damage, it's damage that's done to the brain. That's fascinating. Do people, you know, you just made me think of something when you said athletes. When, when mm-hmm. specifically football, when these, when oh, these yeah. young people are getting concussion after concussion after concussion, does that, right. does that result in dementia sometimes? Yes, it does, and that's why they're actually naming a form of football dementia. Interesting. That's really that's mm-hmm. I, I I have some experience with a with a friend that's son actually was a suicide um, after receiving so many concussions, um, mm-hmm. which is very very sad. So if you were making like we used to do in the old days, an outline where you'd have Roman Roman numerals and then you'd have letters and then you'd have numbers. Is dementia like a Roman numeral and then within the the dementia category there's these four or five or six, seven types which are what you just described? Definitely, and that's a great way to put it because the one that people are finally hearing more about, uh, the frontal temporal dementia, because Bruce Willis was recently, his family came out. And, right. Um, right, right, right. So that is one of the, a perfect example to what you're saying with the Roman numeral and subsets. Mm. That form actually breaks down into, I believe, three or four different types. And even within those types, it branches off. And eventually you start seeing Parkinson's disease. Okay. So they they do have different categories because if you if you think about it this way, it's depending on where the brain starts to deteriorate and as it continues over those years and those stages, then mm-hmm. you start having these other areas to deal with. That makes that makes they, sense. Yeah. Right. Huh. Is is a neurologist the doctor that people seek if they're seeing some kind of slowing down of their mental capacity? Is that is that the physician that typically would yes. see um, somebody with dementia? Yes, but the neurologist I, is typically the doctor and the one that would uh, recommend specific tests to be run. Right. And, you know, for those of us that have reached a certain age in our life, I mean, just saying Medicare, you know, there's when you go for your physical, they're going to say, I'm going to give you five, I'm going to say five words to you. Okay, I'm going to be quiet. Now tell me what those five words were. I want you to draw a clock, and I want it mm-hmm. to say 10 minutes after 11. These are just part mm-hmm. of what we do in just a normal health exam. In my particular case, several years ago, I actually had a full, um, not only brain scan, but an, a brain assessment, which was, it was during, it was during, um, COVID when we were really locked down and it was a fascinating thing about what you could retain and I I don't think there's anything wrong with that I think that it I think if you want to be as you just said proactive as the caregiver I think proactive Mm -hmm. as that adult person that might be just saying let's just let's have a baseline here it's no different than anything else we have baselines for so let's start with the baseline do you have any mild ap- um, atrophy in your in your brain? Yeah, you do as you age. It's it's standard. It's what happens. Um, but what if it changes? Then then you know your left and your right hippocampus. Who even? I never even heard of words like that before. I know those right, terms now. Right. But I would like to know, based on what you've experienced, is preventing dementia possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's the encouragement the, I'm the, looking for. Yes. There, the exciting thing about the research I was doing, because I stepped into that with the panic mm-hmm. and somewhat vain mindset that I don't <clears throat> want mom's story to become mine. And the more I studied her habits and 
matched it up with the symptoms and signs of, of various different forms, I started to realize dementia is not just genetic. Dementia is not something that we have to accept just because, as you said, aging, and so there's normal shrinkage of the brain. There may be, but at the same time, that normal, what we've accepted and normalized as shrinking of the brain is also caused by the very things that we can be doing to prevent it. And that prevention comes from our food, what we put into our body in the first place. That's probably 80% of it. And the rest of it is making sure we are getting restorative rest regularly, like as in sleeping flat on our back so our body can actually have that reboot overnight and there's no Mm -hmm. position that's keeping blood flow to the brain from happening. The exercise is the same thing during the day. And then staying hydrated. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can do and just change our habits that help create that prevention instead of just accepting it as normal aging. Because it's honestly, it's not normal aging. I, I love hearing that. And I can tell you, just when I had my most recent, you know, physical, that was absolutely mm-hmm. one of the things she talked about was diet. Absolutely mm-hmm. diet. And I think that's, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And in your book, you, you also explain healing the heart to heal. Yeah. Why did I put my hand there? Healing the heart. <laughs> to he, I do. To <laughs> heal the mind. <laughs> you know, because, you know, I've just personally experienced um, um, an anniversary of my husband's unexpected passing. Now, I mean, this was 14 years ago, and certainly I had a broken heart. But let's move it over to something more current, and that is, can a broken heart make that much of a difference, do you think, particularly in an older Absolutely. couple? Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's why they, they went up, especially after many, many years of marriage and one passes, they call it the broken heart syndrome where the second spouse passes shortly thereafter of a broken Mm -hmm. heart. They cannot stand to live without them. But even outside of that, the reason I wanted to make light of this is because of the way, not only the ways that we can prevent dementia, but because of the way we cope with what goes on in society, what goes on in our family dynamics, what goes on in relationships, period, whether it's Mm -hmm. personal or professional, we tend to self-medicate, whether that is alcohol, drugs, or even food. We, that's why we call it comfort food. We do things that we don't know are actually damaging our systems that affect the brain. And the heart being the biggest one, if you just heal your proverbial heart, understand why is it that you're craving that ice cream after every breakup? Why is it you're craving uh, potato chips and dip after you get home from work from high stress? Why is it that the first thing you want to do in the morning, some people, is light a cigarette? Why is the habits that we've created damage mm-hmm. the heart? And if the heart is damaged and it's not healed emotionally, then we're going to damage it physically, which in turn damages the brain. Makes complete sense. So why should um, caregivers be concerned about caregiver compliance? Hmm. This is definitely an area that family caregivers need to pay close attention to. And it doesn't matter if you're an adult child with a parent that you're caring for or if you're a spouse, especially if you're a spouse that is has multiple marriages and there's multiple children involved or inheritance, caregivers need to have five legal documents created as soon as possible to assist them in their legal and even medical matters regarding their loved one's care because if you don't take advantage of the time that you have where they know exactly what they want and what they don't want and it's (laughs) passwords, to accounts, bank accounts, and other things mm-hmm. that would be related to their estate, 
then you're not doing yourself any service and you'll be in that situation of the reacting to life when an emergency pops up, for example. So every caregiver that's compliance is referring to having a medical power of attorney, a statutory durable power of attorney, the HIPAA authorization, advanced directive to physicians, and then a declaration of guardianship. Those five documents is what every family caregiver needs to have done. Um, what I'm going to do, because I, in an effort, because if I'm having problems writing this all down, because I think what you just said was vitally important, I will make sure when, we, when we're off this call to get those five legal documents that you've just stated and make sure that I post that in my blog so that people Definitely. will have a reference for that. Now, perhaps it's in your book. I don't know. Is, is it in your it book? It is. Okay. It's actually in the book, and I explain each one and so that it gives a better idea of what they are and That's what you're going to use them for. Perfect. That's perfect. And, you know, your book is, is easily um, seen on your website where people can go and, and purchase your book. And I, and I appreciate you saying that because this sort of sounds like, you know, when you reach a certain age, you know, especially if you've uh, lost a spouse, you know, you have a trust, you have a will, you have all these mm -hmm. things, and you want to make exactly. sure that while you are in good mental state that, that you have taken care of everything you've just stated so that you're not leaving your children going, well, now what the hell am I supposed to do? You know, right. that, should exactly. all, that should all be in compliance, as you said. So that's very important. And, well, and you also have those moments, like I did, where my father was in a position of dying, and the question of what, what would, did he want? Would he want to stay on machines, or would he want this procedure or that procedure? And mm -hmm. we were in shock. We were, I don't know what Dad would want, and maybe he would want this. Maybe he would want us to fight for his life, and maybe he would want us to let him go if he knew he would live with a tracheotomy. Or, right. We didn't know time. Yes, there's actually, um, and I'm just trying to recall what this is called, it's Dignity in Dying. I had a yes. podcast about that last year where this woman in California was able to have her husband do that. And for those of you that might not know what that is, just very quickly, it's only recognized in 11 states, California being one wow. of them. You have mm -hmm. to be able to do self. You can't say, because I thought, oh, you know what? If you find me being a vegetable laying in a bed somewhere, for God's sakes, put me out. I know that is not how it works at all, nope. which seems so exactly. unfortunate. Because if you've made it very clear to your physician, to your attorney, to your children, if I don't have cognitive skills and I am laying as a vegetable breathing, why can't mm -hmm. I why can't I say please I am asking you please release me I think there might right. be something having to do with feeding as far as you know if you if you're not being fed you you eventually would pass but I wish that there was dignity in dying when it comes to dementia because it it eases the pain for everyone I would be so happy to know that at some point that will also would you agree with that? I totally agree with that because yeah. even if you have, even if you let your doctors, your physicians, you're going into a procedure and they all know, but that doesn't mean you won't have that potential of um, accident somewhere entirely different, vacation or otherwise, and they don't know. And first responders, their job is to fight for life. Exactly. Exactly. So for those who don't think that they are a caregiver, what do you want them to know? Oh, this is <laughs> interesting because yes. when, I, when I meet people and they say, um, I'm not a caregiver or my, my loved one's passed, I'm no longer a caregiver, mm. the first thing I want them to know and understand is that caregiving begins with you. 
You need the self-awareness, the self-care, and the self-compassion to lead part of our emotional capacity, which helps us create more emotional intelligence. Because just because society says, oh, that's a mother, that's a father, that's a brother, sister, spouse, and so on, that doesn't make you any less of a caregiver. It's taken so many years for insurance and other organizations to recognize the family caregiver, which makes sense that we struggle to recognize ourselves as a caregiver. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it begins with you. Right. That, you're right. And, and that's not selfish. By, no. by no means is that selfish. Actually, that's showing love and compassion starting with you. So. Yeah. How did you work past that initial anger that you must have had and resentment towards being your mom's essential caregiver? Oh, I definitely stepped into that role very angry, but it it took a while for me to understand Mm -hmm. what that anger, where it started. And then I had Mm -hmm. to grow into this routine of reflection and meditation. But this anger of I used to or at least I remembered time years ago where I was engrossed in this, wanting my mom to be engrossed in my world and help me emotionally and physically when she was incapable for whatever reasons that I didn't understand or know at that time. And now I'm stepping in as her caregiver to provide mm-hmm. emotional comfort. I was really angry with those kind of things. But it really went back to understanding where did that anger actually start? Where where was that seed, that little mustard seed planted years ago? And it was so much of childhood-related um, trying to see that as the role switched from parent to child, and now I'm stepping into her role. And she was quite a different child than I was. Mm-hmm. Or I probably got exactly what, <laughs> what I gave her. <laughs> so oh, man. There That's was funny. quite a bit of anger there. Wow. Hmm. What, what do you think has been the biggest shock you've had to deal with in providing care? What, what, what surprised you the most? Oh, gosh. What surprised me the most in this process is how caregiving, the business of caregiving is even when it came down to hospice, I, I hospice is a great, great service for us to have. But I've also talked to several caregivers who have had bad experiences with hospice. And I've had one recently with mom that I didn't expect to have. And so that's what clued me into this. There's this business of aging as opposed to it being a societal responsibility and just basic humanity to love our aging population. It's a business, and that's sad and shocking. It is. You know, you said something very interesting. You mentioned hospice, and maybe mm-hmm. I have a mis- misunderstanding of that term. Right. Um, but I was under the assumption that if you were placed on hospice care, which means it's coming from your physician, Correct. Correct. As if, okay, that typically you have six months or less to live. Is that accurate or is that, has that definition changed? It's, it's the definition that stands, but it is a little bit more loose because some people are on hospice for way longer than six months. I see. And it just, the, the six months, I believe the reason why this is standard is because that's how often they evaluate the patient to see if they qualify to stay or continue receiving the hospice benefits through Medicare. That's usually as Medicare, right? That um, right. It's, it's, but it's that's interesting. Not the case. Well, no, because look what you were just saying. I mean, you said earlier in this podcast that that you're finding more and more people are well below mm-hmm. the age of Medicare. And, right. you know, and now what? You know, you, yeah. you are that football player and you're in your, you're in your 30s. You might not even, right. I don't even remember if he was in his 30s. Might be his early 30s. And, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating, really. And 
once that, you know, there's no such thing as a brain transplant, right? It's not like you're going to, I am right about that, right? It's not like, well, let's just remove this stuff that's aging and give you a new one. It's not like, right? I mean, I am right about that, aren't I? I don't think, as far as I know, I haven't heard of a successful brain transplant. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Oh, my I God. I, I, I'm probably the first one that ever said that to you. But, um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's kind of, I mean, there's some humor to the fact that I said that, but because we probably all know people that said, oh, my God, you know, this person is just driving me crazy, and it has nothing to do with dementia. But, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think that what's, what's so, when you, when you are a facilitator, do you find sometimes that you are speaking in front of a group? Is that part of what you would do to just sort of yeah. help people know about this? Absolutely. Yes, that's basically what I do to inform and help them understand enough to where they can identify it in their own lives instead of dismissing I, as we did. Right. I, you know, I know we don't, we're not neighbors, um, but I'm just thinking about the activities that I'm involved in, like the Chamber of Commerce, but also my mm-hmm. Rotary Club. I would, have you ever, have you ever spoke to a Rotary meeting? As a, as a guest yet. speaker, you know, yet, I, I, we, I, I think that if you were to just do a little bit of research on your own, if I don't know that you have the time, but I would, if you lived near me, I would definitely mm-hmm. schedule you as somebody that would, you know, it's just fifteen or twenty minutes about what it is that you do that can help people now. I know that I, I have I, I know that there's a, a an organization in my in our rotary called Music Men's Minds, where this woman mm. started this organization. Have you heard of it? I have. I, yes. Yes. Well, so it started here, and this woman, That's her awesome. husband. This was a while ago, and her husband was non-communicative. He was not speaking at all. So mm-hmm. they decided, let's try an experiment. And they put him in front of a piano because they knew that she had told him that they, he could sing and he could play. He sat, mm. They sat him in front of the piano. Oh, my God. He started to play. And then he started to sing. He became That's vocal. It, and, you know, they've said a lot about how music, um, it can be a real healing component for somebody and the loved ones to say oh my god look at mom she's singing Mm -hmm. along there's they actually have a zoom um thing for not only for the person that is suffering from the dementia because maybe they don't even know how to get on zoom or or even do that but perhaps they're in a boarding care facility they're living at home with their loved ones whatever those circumstances Mm -hmm. might be but she was just saying how much music can spark she said it's like food for she was saying you know metaphorically it's like food for the brain and i just was i just thought this is this is unbelievable so she actually this has become international that's part of rotary and you know maybe Mm -hmm. you you check out rotary near where you're living or kiwanis or lions or wherever you know whatever those um groups are that might be near you and see what you could do about um, making that happen for somebody that might might really might be very helpful for them, but when you think about your own life, do you have some go-to stress relievers that you do? Oh, definitely. I like, give me an example. Cannot... Sure, my go-tos on a daily basis are meditation first thing in the morning, and I alternate days with. Um, indoor meditation or outdoor nature walks. I call them my God walks because if it wasn't for time uh, to reflect and praying for clarity and strength and guidance, I probably would have broken years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So doing things like yoga as part of my meditation and the, the deep cleansing breath to bring in that universal positive energy and exhale with all the negativity. It's 
it's a practice that I didn't put enough emphasis on 10 years ago. And now Mm -hmm. I do not start my days without it. I'm so happy to hear you say that. And I know, you know, I don't just ask questions and just say next and not, and not join in in this conversation because that's what this is. (laughs) This is that conversation. And I added yoga to my life four years ago. That was way before the pandemic. The, the person that was teaching the class was somebody that I knew when I worked at the YMCA, and now mm-hmm. she was doing yoga. It was something I had never even thought about or considered at all. I don't even know what was the first prompting to me even considering that. Maybe she just said, you know what, why don't you, why don't, I'm teaching a yoga class. Why don't you come and try this out? Right. And I'm, I haven't stopped since. And as I do it online, we we don't even we don't even meet in the studio any longer. And it's really a restorative type of yoga, just like what you just said. And that mm-hmm. inhale, that exhale, that four square breathing, recognizing mm-hmm. that um, our shoulders are not supposed to be underneath our ears, and just calming down. I I start with that even before I get out of bed in the morning. I just, mm-hmm. you know, we all have our practice, whether it's a religious practice, whether it's a mindful, grateful practice, whatever that is. And frankly, I would really say to those of you listening, if you've never really considered something like that, I mean, I live all alone right. except for my kitty. So I mean, part of what my gratefulness has to do with her as she's just getting off of my back because she's been sleeping on it all night. Um, so yes, it's like, oh yeah, I can pretty much sleep on my stomach because evidently I'm the resting spot for my, for my cat. Um, but as we, God, but as we wake up in the morning, um, you know, there's that comfort and that just like you say, the, the meditation, however you want to make it, because nobody can define somebody else's meditation process. It has to be what's right for you. What's, what is mm-hmm. right for you? Did you did you grow up in a religious home? And so, of speaking I with did. God, did you I did not? In, is that what you? In, well, so I grew up in a very strict Catholic family. You but did. meditation and this type of um, reflection and yoga that was not part of our routines in any kind of way. I, in fact, I wasn't, it didn't get introduced to me until uh, an adult much later in life. In fact, I believe our family used to look at it as irrelevant and not helpful. And it was always a different kind of practice that others did. And I never really understood why we didn't do this before, because now I can't imagine life without it. Right. And you know, um, my husband was an engineer, <laughs> though that alone should give you some idea that, you know, he, and he was raised, he was, he was raised a Catholic. Um, but, you know, he just lived this life of simplicity, for lack of a different word, because clearly he had a very significant job in what he did. You know, kids would say, what do you do for a living? And he said, uh, I line up ducks and make sure they're all facing in the same direction because um, he had a top clearance. He couldn't talk about what it, what it was he did. But he did, he did live simply by just knowing that it is what it is and to adapt. And, and so, so there was a great deal of calmness around him. He, he, wasn't, he was a calm person. I don't know what was going on in the inside, but I presume that he was calm on the inside too. And when we can be calm on the inside, and and whatever method that is, maybe it is taking that walk. And just Mm -hmm. maybe it is, you know, for me, for a very long time, um, Jessica, it was my camera. Let me just Mm. get outside and take a picture of that hummingbird, of that pelican, of that rose, whatever that might Mm be. I'm... I'm happier being with people than being alone. I, I, I must admit that that's very much the case. But but we all need that quiet time, don't we? Especially Absolutely. if we're a caregiver. Because it, like you said in the very <laughs> beginning, 
if we don't care for ourselves, there's nothing left. You know, exactly. I you know, I didn't have I my parents both they neither one of them passed quickly. They both had illnesses mm-hmm. that that took them out, but um so I wasn't they were they were they had hospital care. They were not you know, um, they did not, neither one of my parents had um, dementia or Alzheimer's. But, um, you know, whatever that is, we're, none of us are getting out of here alive. So we already know that to be the case, <laughs> right? Says. Does she yes, say that? Exactly. We're not getting out of here alive. She says that. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You go, well, there you have it. But, it's, but you know, it's true. So then it's like, well, then if we're, if we're going to be here, how do we make it the best? What is our purpose? And it sounds to me like you have found a purpose. You have found a way of taking what you've lived, what you've learned, what you live with, and sharing it with others. And I mean, it seems like do you do you have what's up for you next? Do you do you have? Do you still are you still podcasting, or is that sort of sometimes and sometimes not? I am so podcasting. We normally release our first episode in early January, but this year I've had some delays because of mom's care and I had an injury myself, but I am still podcasting. I'm still working on consulting and doing other creative projects, but my goal this year is to get more involved on the legislative side for helping to create the space for proactive caregivers and and make proactive changes happen because it was it's disheartening to see the caregiver business and how caregivers are exploited instead of helped. Wow. Does wow. So let me ask you because that's really I I wasn't anticipating that as an answer. Do you have do you have some routes to to make that happen do you do you know people that from the political side that could work with you on that i don't know people specifically on the political side but i do have local organizations that i am going to start partnering with so that i can work more closely with them since they definitely have a lot more power and our collaboration between um getting the information and storytelling from the caregivers seems to be a good fit. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, you know, I, I think this death with dignity is so important. And, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I, to me, to, for me, I just, if I was going to take a legislative route, you know, um, mm-hmm. that just seems like, such a way of starting because I feel like you know what it's only an option it's you know depending upon your faith depending upon Mm -hmm. your religious faith there's no way that you might consider that that that's that's God's decision and that's not my decision and so I'm not I'm not judging and you know we learn we, you know we both learn that in yoga this isn't about mm-hmm. judgment at all this is absolutely no. not about judgment but it is about freedom and it is about yeah. choosing and um I just for me personally if I knew that I had that ability to say to my children okay here's the deal if this is what's happening your dad worked way too hard for you to put me in a in a memory center for ten thousand dollars or whatever it is a month, mm-hmm. so that exactly. you because you are you live in Tucson, you're not going to come out and help. You have a demanding job. You're not going to give up your job. So then, who takes care of mom? Well, somebody's got to right. take care of her. So what were you going to do? Blow through all of this inheritance? I don't want that to happen. I, I don't want that to happen. And so I I am so in favor of knowing what you will end up doing in a legislative way that, that might enhance that ability. You know, there obviously has to be criteria. There has to be criteria. That, right. that goes right. without saying. But if you are no longer able 
to communicate at all. You can't talk. What are you? Do- you're. You're. What are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. release me. It's like that song. Please release me. Let me go. You right. know, it's. I. I just. That's just my own personal opinion. But um, I just think that what you're doing is so important, and I would really encourage people to purchase your book. I know I'm going to. And uh, I think it's it's an important thing to have in the house. It's just one more thing that just gives you a little bit of comfort. And I just want to thank you so much for what mm-hmm. you've brought to this podcast today. It was so informative, Jessica. And I You're and I'm welcome. really grateful. I'm really grateful and, and I wish I wish you the very best. Whatever that is, whatever that looks like. That's what I'm wishing for you today. Mm. Whoa. So we'll take that yoga breath, won't we? And um, (laughs) because, you know, sometimes we need that bit of oxygen to just go, wow, that was good. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for all of you listening, I hope that you have appreciated what we've talked about today i hope you will able to share it with your friends it will certainly be across all of my social media all of it so wherever you listen to a podcast you can clearly just go to born to talk radio show and just follow along because podcasting is really helpful and this will be Mm -hmm. a really great a great way for people to to hear this as well so I will make, I'm going to say goodbye for now so that you can get on with your beautiful day in Texas. And I want to just thank you all for, for joining me today. I will be back here again next week because that's what I do. That is my purpose. So I will say yes. bye for now, everybody. Have a great day. <laughs>